I'm going to just predict right now, I'm just going to make a totally ambitious prediction that for the 2024 presidential election, there will be an anti-debate on Joe Rogan. The presidential thing that is currently on wherever it is, CNN, and is not helpful to the public, we don't even know where it is. And the point is, it's not serving the public. And I mean, now that we have independent slash non-legacy media pundits or influencers who have as big of an audience, if not bigger, the consciousness goes where the audience, if Joe Rogan calls, if he just says, hey, presidential lineup, we're actually going to do an anti-debate on my show because my show is the show with the audience. If you can't do an anti-debate, well, then you won't be there. And it's going to be a competition for who can integrate the best of what all the candidates have to offer. That's the winner. That's who we want to vote for. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Stephanie Lepp, and I'm going to introduce her momentarily. But first, a little housekeeping. You may have heard me talking lately about a project I've been working on. Uh, it's called The Unspeakeasy. It is a heterodox space for women. In my interview a few weeks ago with Jonathan Haidt, I talked a little bit about this theory I have that women can have a slightly different relationship to cancel culture than men do. Generally speaking, of course, not everyone. We're less likely to voice unpopular opinions because the social penalties for doing so can be more deeply felt. I can tell you, uh, if I had a dollar for every woman who's written to me and told me about being tossed out of her book club for liking the wrong book or not liking the right book, well, yeah, you you get the idea. So I am creating something called the Unspeakeasy. It is an intellectual community for free-thinking women. And while it's still very much a work in progress, I can tell you that it will exist both online and in real life and have any number of offerings that I'm in the process of figuring out. Uh, last month, a group of women uh, went out into the desert. I, I led them out into the desert and we had a three-day brainstorming session about this whole thing. Uh, and I can tell you it was amazing and I feel there are many more to come. If you want to learn about what we're up to, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com. There's a little message from me and an opportunity for you to get on the mailing list and tell me what you might be looking for from such a community. If you are not a woman, don't fret. I am also planning on building out the larger unspeakable community, even beyond the Patreon. And that, of course, is uh, for everyone and will remain so. Okay, my guest is Stephanie Lepp. She is an artist, a film and video producer, and she's the executive producer at the Center for Humane Technology, where she leads the production of the podcast, Your Undivided Attention. Her latest independent project is Deep Reckonings, which we're going to talk a lot about. We also talk about a variety of concepts that Stephanie has developed in response to the current iteration of the so-called post-truth world. And that includes her theory of promiscuous pragmatic pluralism, among other things. We also talk about a conversation she had with economist Glenn Lowry on his podcast earlier this spring. And are you ready for this? 
We talk about why she thinks that the next presidential debate will be an anti-debate on Joe Rogan. I'm going to open the interview, however, with something a little different. It's a few minutes from the audio portion of a video that is part of Stephanie's Deep Reckoning series. I'll let you listen for yourself, and then I will get to my interview with Stephanie Lepp. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Justice Kennedy. It is the highest honor to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And as a serving member for almost two years now, it's time to set the record straight. Did I ever knowingly sexually assault anyone? Absolutely not. Not in high school? Not ever. Did I ever do anything that I didn't think was sexual assault, but might be sexual assault in the way we rightly understand it today? Well, that's a different question. The truth is, as I've reflected since the hearings, I don't know if I ever committed what today would be considered sexual assault. But what I do know is, it's possible that I committed sexual assault. I do know that Christine Blasey Ford has endured a tremendous amount of pain over the course of her life. And I know that I responded to her allegations with defensiveness, partisanship, and a disregard for the public good, which only exacerbated her pain along with that of my family and that of our country. And for that, I take responsibility, and I apologize. What I also know is I missed an opportunity for leadership. I missed an opportunity to secure my place on the Supreme Court in a way that advanced the cause for women, a cause I support. I missed an opportunity to keep the Supreme Court above partisan politics, which may be an impossible ideal, but one I aspire to. I missed that opportunity. So I'd like to take that opportunity now and say, the way women are treated in this country is changing. And thank God. Historically, women like Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez didn't have much recourse in cases of sexual abuse, especially when the alleged perpetrator was a man of power. Today, powerful perpetrators are being exposed, tried, and imprisoned. And some men are getting caught in the crossfire of change. Some men are getting caught treating women in ways that were once considered normal which never made them right, but are now socially inappropriate, if not illegal. It may seem unfair to the man being held accountable to standards he didn't grow up with, but as they say, evolution is beautiful, but it's not pretty. So to the men of this country, to the men leading this country, whatever we might think about my confirmation process, 
There's a bigger process of social progress that I want us to celebrate and support. The ability of women with credible allegations against powerful men to come forward and be heard is something I want us to celebrate and support. The Me Too movement, in conjunction with due process, is something I want us to celebrate and support. Stephanie Lepp, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you, Megan. Good to be here. The clip we just heard represented words spoken by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, but it was not Brett Kavanaugh. He never said those words. This was, in fact, a synthetic version of his voice reading a script that you wrote. So before we get into this conversation in any depth, I want to talk about what we just heard and tell us why you created this. Yes. So why did I put words in Brett Kavanaugh's mouth? Yeah. So I used to... I, I used to produce a podcast called Reckonings, which explored, it told the stories of how people change their hearts and minds in all kinds of ways, how people uh, expand their political worldviews, how people transcend violent extremism, how people recover from addiction. It was all stories of people who've made some kind of transformative change. And from the early days of the show, I... I had kind of a wish list of guests of of people who, and and really public figures who I thought that their personal transformation would 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 kind of scale into or translate into broad based social change. Like when, when when I think of social change, I think of social movements. I think of lots and lots and lots of people agitating for social change. But we could also ask the question: Well, well, who are the fewest people? Right, mm-hmm. that if they had some crisis of conscience, it would it would it would translate into social change. And I, you know, if Charles Koch, for example, had a crisis of conscience, it would literally change the climate trajectory of the planet. And I started kind of fantasizing about making a film about I didn't even really know what I was what I was imagining, but some kind of fake film of about Charles Koch's crisis of conscience and how <laughs> why, it ended and up. Why did you pick Charles Koch specifically? <laughs> because he, because precisely because of that question, you know, who are the fewest people or who are, who are people whose personal transformation would translate into some kind of broad-based social change? And I single him out because, yeah, because a lot of a lot of i i attribute a lot of how our country is stuck <laughs> on the issue of climate um i attribute i attribute a, a good part of that to him and okay. so yeah right. you might so, have to then, fill us in on the details of that but yeah let's go yeah explain more and then i want to hear about Brett Kavanaugh specifically yeah and the truth is this i mean it could really be i could have chosen anyone but i i started i started kind of fantasizing about making some kind of a film about Charles Koch's crisis of conscience. And then, and then I discovered the phenomenon of deep fakes. And I was like, wow, you can do this. (laughs) You could actually make this, this, this fantasy film about, about Charles Koch's crisis of conscience and how it changed the world. And, 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 and for those of you who don't know what deep fakes are, deep fakes are fake video. We are now at the point where we can make a video that makes it look like someone is saying or doing something that they never said or did, which is obviously terrifying. And we can talk about the ethics of 
of the technology, et cetera. But, but just to go, so I, I decided to start with an audio prototype on, on reckonings on my podcast and actually, and not with Charles Koch. I, I started with the Pope, um, imagining okay. the Pope, the Pope, rec- Pope Francis reckoning with the clergy sex abuse crisis. Now I, so I wrote a script, I hired a voice actor, I have had never released fiction on the show, so I had no idea what listeners were going to say, uh, but I made it very clear that it was fake. And, uh, and to my surprise, people really appreciated it. And I even heard from survivors of clergy sex abuse who, um, who knowing that it was fake, found it really helpful to hear the imaginary Pope say the kinds of things that they would love to hear the real Pope say. And so Deep Reckonings, this, the project that you just heard, this the Kavanaugh is, is, is part of, is, is kind of this culmination of a years-long exploration of how people change and, and kind of a years-long, really more broadly speaking, a years-long devotion to, to, to making more room for ourselves to grow in public. So it is a series of explicitly marked deepfake videos that imagine morally courageous versions of our public figures. So if Brett Kavanaugh, if Mark Zuckerberg had a crisis of conscience, what would he say? You can now watch what I consider to be, of course, this is filtered through my brain, but you can now watch what I consider to be morally courageous versions of Brett Kavanaugh, Mark Zuckerberg, Alex Jones, and Donald Trump. It is absolutely explicit that the videos are fake, not just because I'm not interested in deceiving anybody, but because that's also kind of part of the power of the medium is that you can know that it's fake and it still influences you like the audio, the audio prototype with the Pope. I'm, I'm not interested in, this is not parody. This is not satire. You know, this is, this is, this is me challenging myself to really imagine if, if these people had a crisis of conscience, which yes, of course it is still filtered through my brain and my biases, but Mm -hmm. I'm imagining, you know, what wisdom would they come to? What would they learn if they watched their consciousness evolve? What, what would they learn that would be helpful for all of us? Um, right. And there is a ton I can say about, you know, the implications of deepfakes for truth and epistemology and the ethics of, of, of the technology. But I'll just kind of, <laughs> I'll just conclude with the, with kind of the orienting question of the project, which is, you know, how might we use our synthetic selves to elicit our better angels? Okay. And uh, to that, I will respond with an incredibly banal question, but I mm. think it's probably one that people are asking themselves, what were you hoping to accomplish with this? Like the obvious question is, okay, it's great. It would be great if people thought this way. It would be amazing if Brett Kavanaugh um, were able to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time um, sufficiently to to be able to make a statement like this. Um, but uh, he's not going to do that. And in fact, most people cannot and will not do that. So what were you hoping to achieve? Yeah. And I, and I'm, I, I, part of the reason I wanted to release this as a series is because I, I don't want to kind of over index on any individual. This could be anyone, right? The Pope, Obama, Sheryl Sandberg, anybody. And so really the, the intentions are kind of beyond any individual character, but yeah, there were kind of, there were, there were three, three intentions of, of the project. The first is around the technology itself. Um, you know, there is a lot of, uh, 
understandable panic around deepfakes. 96% of deepfakes online are involuntary pornography, sticking someone's face in a porn movie they never acted in. So naturally, you know, there, there, there is a panic around the technology. And I, I, I'm interested in, instead of asking, are deepfakes ethical, which is kind of a technologically deterministic way to think, it's like, is it inherent to a technology to be ethical or unethical? The question that I'm interested in in asking is under what circumstances, if any, can deepfakes be ethical and not even ethical, but even used in benevolent ways? And mm-hmm. there's some people that might say under no circumstances whatsoever. I believe there are circumstances. And so I was kind of challenging myself to draw that line. Um, and I can, you know, we can talk about where I, where I drew the line, but the point is I, I think it can be drawn. I do think that it is possible to use deepfakes and synthetic media more broadly in, in ethical and and even benevolent ways. And so one intention is to kind of help define and fulfill and even kind of expand what we might call the 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 pro-social potential of of synthetic media. So that 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 was the first. The, the second intention is around um is around redemption. Um so we're all we're all kind of used to the deny and deflect playbook. Right. The, you know, when acute, when public figure is accused of wrongdoing, just kind of deny and deflect. And so part of my intention here, and this was also true from about reckonings, the podcast is to, is to create an alternative playbook that is, you know, that's more beautiful, more powerful, more stunning than the deny and deflect thing, such that if, if Brett Kavanaugh were to watch his, you know, you know, and this is obviously, this is outrageous. Uh, outrageously ambitious, impossible because putting words in someone's mouth is inherently alienating to them. But you know, but it, let's if Brett Kavanaugh were to see it in the privacy of his home in a very reflective moment, it might even inspire him to say, "Wow, you know, like that is that is that's that's hot." You know, now that is the me that I want to be. Um, okay, and, wait, mm, okay. Mm, so I have so many thoughts here. Yes. I'm sorry to I'm sorry to interrupt yes. you. For, I want to yeah. back up in a second and ask you to talk about what pro social means. But huh. just if you were if you were watching uh, a, a deep fake video made of, of you, if of somebody myself. put words yeah. in your mouth, even saying yeah. something incredibly eloquent and thoughtful, I mean, I know for my part, I would squirm like to the you know within an inch of my life. It would be it would not be it's, comfortable. It's really hard to say. I think this is why um, I think this is why this question of under what circumstances, if any, and where do we draw these lines and consent is one consideration, but one consideration among many. I mean, what if I had a fear of public speaking and my partner created a deepfake of me giving an unbelievable TED talk? It really depends. It depends on <laughs> so many book, variables. If it's all copies of my book, I would say that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But and and I and I shouldn't. I should. I shouldn't have even kind of. I mean, you you rate. Yes, it is inherently alienating to put words in someone's mouth. Um, and I really don't want to. This isn't kind of something for Kavanaugh per se or for no, any of them. Of it's kind of for all of us, you know. And yeah. and again, the goal is to make make, let's just say, critical self-reflection look beautiful, make it look more beautiful mm. than the other thing, because we don't, right now, we don't have models, right? The, the the alternatives we have, let's say, of public apologies are often this kind of groveling thing that is not more beautiful. Right, well, <laughs> it's the not, hostage it's not, statement. Yeah, yeah, it's not only not more beautiful, it's not even 
it's not wise. It's not authentic. It's not like, that's why like the, the source for these scripts, the real source for these scripts is, is, is the entire catalog of reckonings episodes. I mean, I've start I've, I've learned what a reckoning sounds like, right. And always there is more, there is, there is insight. It's not just an apology. The apology is like, okay, the apology. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't downplay that, the, the, the apology. And also someone learns something, someone learns something real and big and helpful and interesting and insightful. And so, yeah, part of this is, is about making that alternative playbook, making it look more stunning than the thing that we're used to. Yeah. And the word reckoning itself has been really diluted. We're constantly talking about having a racial reckoning. Um, any, <laughs> yeah. any number of reckonings are going on at any totally. given time. And yeah. it's it's often pretty meaningless. Yeah, I know. I thought it would help that I mean, because I started the show in 2015. And oh, yeah, no, that, I, I'm not. I think you were at, you were ahead of the curve there. So. <laughs> no, I mean, either way. Um, but um, you're right. I mean, the same with we could say the same about I, apologies. I'm so, I mean, there is such a performance of this kind of thing that um, it can be hard. Yeah. It, yeah. But I guess, I guess to me, it's like you, you can, you can imagine like a two by two matrix, uh, you know, like deny, apologize, and then like authentic, inauthentic or something. There's all kinds of inauthentic apologies. And, oh, and part and you know most and of them are. the and um and I guess that's kind of what I was challenging myself to find is okay you know I mean the the, the three questions I asked myself in writing the scripts I kind of I, there was kind of a template that emerged the the first question is what is this person reckoning with i.e. what do I think this person is reckoning with like what do I think is this is 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 theirs to own but the second question is what do I think happen. Yeah. Like what, what, what is the story? Like wh what is the entire beginning of the reckonings episode of that person that we didn't, we didn't get to hear because we just heard the reckonings part, but what is the entire beginning of the story? You know, and then the third question, and this is, you know, again, I don't know if it's a little patronizing, but you know, what, what could, what, what would this per person having gone through a reckoning have to teach all of us? beyond an apology like what is the lesson they can then teach us all right yeah I, you know I, the part of the reason i started with the brad Kavanaugh clip part of the reason i used that as my example because i know you've done this for uh, several different figures was that you know we've talked about brad Kavanaugh on this show recently i had sarah heppela on uh, yeah. a month or so ago talking about alcoholic Abortion. blackouts among other uh, things uh -huh. and you know, and we talked about him and and the fact that part of what was missing in that whole um, episode was an acknowledgement or an understanding of what a blackout was. And it seems pretty clear to a lot of people anyway, that he was that what Christine Blasey Ford said happened did happen. And he, Brett Kavanaugh just doesn't remember it. Totally. Yeah. And and I think that's a lot of what you were getting at in your script for him. And I think I was thinking about, well, if he had managed to say something like that, it would have opened up uh, a productive, a more productive conversation. Although the totally. bar was pretty low on productivity of conversation at that time. Uh, and, and it probably would have, um, he, he would have saved a lot of, you know, he would have salvaged a lot of political capital uh, for himself. Yeah. 
I agree. I agree. But I, I, yeah, but in this climate, it's like he felt like he had nowhere to go kind of thing. And so part of the idea here, at least with this kind of second intention, yeah, is to, is to create a model for this other place that we can go that is like way more win-win. Right. The other thing though is, so the other thing I was thinking though, when I listened was that, okay, it would have been great for him. uh, He, I mean, he would have made maybe life better for himself in some ways but then like uh, is the is the culture even able to hear what he's saying like is he even able to are, are we even able to totally. metabolize that totally yeah, yeah it takes it, two to tango i mean that's part of why he says this line i don't i don't know if this is in the clip that you made but you, he says um me too isn't just a reckoning with sexual abuse of power it's a reckoning with how we deal with sexual abuse of power, you know, for the high profile men who are credibly accused, it's a reckoning with how we are, or in most cases are not using our positions of power to take responsibility and leadership. And for the Me Too movement, it's a reckoning with whether you make room for accused men to do that. So yeah, it takes, it really does take all of us. It takes, he, I mean, it's on him to make the first move. Obviously the responsibility is his, the reckoning is his to own. And would we even recognize it if we saw it? Would we would we be willing to if he rolled out the red carpet, would we walk with him in that direction? It, yeah, it's it's tough right now. But that's, it, you know, that's at least kind of the flag in the ground that I want to try to plant. Yeah. You know, it also reminded me this is pretty old history by now when Jocelyn Elders was um, Surgeon General uh, under Bill Clinton uh, in the early 90s. She, I remember, said something about. Um, masturbation being taught in schools. Okay. And uh-huh. it was some kind of public statement. And it was obvious that she was talking about, you know, the existence of masturbation or the definition of masturbation being taught as part of sex ed in schools. She wasn't talking about literally teaching how kids how to masturbate. <laughs> oh, God. Uh-huh. And, you know, she was, she was fired shortly yeah. after this. It created yeah. a huge stir. You know, and this was, you know, during the real, the, the, evangelical right was um, had a lot of power at that time. And, you know, the, the conversation was actually had a lot of similarities to the conversation today, but it was being driven by a different uh, cohort. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just that kind of inability to um, to uh, sort of discern any kind of gray area and um, hold opposing thoughts in your head at the same time. That's as old as the hills. Totally. And, and, and speaking of unspeakability, I mean, that's, that's, to me, that's kind of the unspeakable thing is the, is the, is the attempt to integrate the different sides or the attempt to speak like, and I, and you know, I got, I of course got heat from all the sides, right. I got both, you know, he doesn't deserve to have his apology written for him and he doesn't have anything to apologize for. (laughs) So you're getting it from both. So this really is kind of the unspeakable or like the unspoken, you know? Um, Right. Right. Yeah. And you do this um, on a visual, uh, in a visual medium too. You make Venn diagrams where you talk about how you can, you know, entertain certain opinions at the same time. And be intellectually consistent. It's I, it's hard to describe those in an audio format, but maybe <laughs> do your best because I, I think they're great. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, I'm I'm just coming from this. Well, I guess maybe to ground it in a specific issue. You know, right now we can we can talk about abortion. Abortion is up right now, and we're in this 
we're in this wild situation where the majority of Americans want sensible abortion rights. But, you know, because of the system that we're in, because of the political dysfunctional system we're in, we're going to end up with laws at the extremes, maybe at the state level, like laws at the extremes that that not the majority of Americans want. And so the question comes up, you know, okay, how would we even articulate a perspective on abortion that the largest ideological diversity of people could get on board with? This is this is what I'm calling the synthesis position. How do we articulate the it's not the thesis, it's not the antithesis, you know, it's the synthesis position on X issue, which is I should which is not so it's not one side, it's not the other side. It's also not both sidesism, you know, because it there right. are some yeah, so it's not just flat equal both sides. It's not squishy that, being in the middle mm, either. No, exactly. It's it takes some work. Um and I, yeah, I think like there are many reasons that we are as polarized as we are, but I think one reason is that there is, there is that this, this synthesis position, let's say is not being articulated, at least not in the, you know, the, the mainstream media. There, there is, there, there is no big bed for all the strangest bedfellows to get into bed in together. And so, yeah, one way I've been kind one kind of, there's two tools I've been playing with. One of them is is Venn diagrams. And I just challenge myself. To, I give myself four circles maximum. Um, I mean, I, I can even just give a simple one, you know, Michael Jackson, you know, unbelievably, amazingly, extraordinarily talented musician and sexual predator. <laughs> they just coexist. Neither of them cancel each other out. His sexual predation doesn't make his mu- music any less bad. And, you know, and his amazing music doesn't make his his sexual predation any, any any less bad either. So they don't cancel each other out. Uh, they just have, they just coexist. And so I, yeah, I, but <laughs> that's just kind of a maybe palate cleanser <laughs> Venn diagram yeah, well, right there. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. And here's, you know, here's one that you did. There's four circles here. So I think pe- maybe, I think people can probably understand this. So this has to do with Confederate monuments. Okay, mm. so you've got four circles at the top, it, you say Confederate monuments okay. were built to paper over the racist aspects of the Confederacy. Okay. And then to the right of that, going clockwise, overlapping circle, it says Confederate history is part of American history. And at the bottom, it says when monuments cease to reflect local values, they should be repurposed as educational resources. And then... Um, to the left of that, slightly above, also overlapping. They're all overlapping. To some people, Confederate monuments commemorate Southern history. And at the center, at the center where they all intersect, you write, "You can be here now. <laughs> you can be here." Uh, but uh, for a lot of people, uh, their heads will explode. If oh, they totally, are. I love it. We're already. We're how many minutes in? Abortion, Confederate monuments. This really is the unspeakable. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you know life stuff. Right um, yeah, I again, it's it's like I want to not over index on the like I yeah. This is my brain trying to what it basically take giving myself four circles max. Um, you know, really trying to articulate the steel man version of the different perspectives, and in this case, you know pro or anti. Um, and so I kind of, this is like, so, uh, what would I call it? Kind of a flat, not super rich, just, it's like gave each side two circles. <laughs> um, yeah. but, and so that is kind of a little bit both sides, but it's just, it's like, I would think of this 
and in a way, the script writing for Deep Reckonings also as, as, as more of a praxis. It's like we can look at the thing that I did, but that's just the one that I made. Like, how would you script the crisis of conscience for someone you really disagree or struggle with? How would you, you know, take an issue that you feel so strongly about and, and steel man the opposing view in a way that would result in the Venn diagram where you could be here and it includes the steel man version of the opposing side. You know, it's, right. it's, uh, it's, it's almost like, I, 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 I could imagine this in, in school, you know, it's, it's, it's more of like yeah. an educational exercise. Yes. That's what I was going to say. It, these strike me as really useful pedagogical materials. Like kids should be learning this in school. I, I think by the time it gets to adults looking at it on Twitter, we may be a lost cause, but we may be have lost you cause thought of- and what I love about like now that I haven't actually thought about kids doing this in schools until now, but what I love is if if and what I can imagine happening is after enough enough of these, they don't need the Venn diagram anymore. The Venn diagram is just a training wheel for right. me in a polarized moment in my age. I'm you know like I need that, but like after enough of them or eventually or whatever, when it's in the culture, like we won't need the training wheels anymore. We'll be able to articulate the more holistic. I mean, the abortion one is also very telling because one of the circles, I think, I think says life is precious. And it's like, hell yeah, life is precious. We, I, we can all agree on that. You know, I think I would hope I would imagine, but that's, that's the kind of thing that would not get left out. You know, if someone is kind of thinking holistically or expansively or the synthesis positions, like, yes, life is precious and, 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 and. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any issues that you would have a really, really hard time um, kind of executing this thought exercise? I mean, I think, you know, we're recording this on May 26th. This has been the week of the um, horrific shooting in Texas. There's no adjectives to throw in there that haven't been already used ad nauseum and also are just insufficient. So let's just say... um, 19 children uh, were killed in Texas. Everybody's talking about guns. Now, now here's something like with a, with abortion, I can understand the intellectual and moral position for thinking it is murder. I don't think that, um, but I understand how somebody could something like guns. I, I understand the second amendment. I know a lot of people who own guns. I am not, um, I, I don't have some kind of radical anti-gun position, but at the end of the day, it's really hard for me to understand the motivation of any kind of Republican legislator not to enact certain gun laws uh, other than NRA lobbying and, yes. uh, and, and, appe- and appealing to your base that, that ultimately I think if they did understand they, you know, responsible gun owners want more gun restrictions. Like mm-hmm. this makes no sense to me. Like, mm-hmm. is, so if you were going to make a, I don't want to put you on the spot, but let me just, <laughs> put it could you imagine yourself making one of these Venn diagrams around gun control? I can. And that's because it's similar to abortion in the sense that most Americans want sensible gun legislation. It's just a matter of articulating what that actually is. And I, and there is, there are groups. I, and actually I did do a reckonings episode about this. It's an amazing story. It's the, it's the person who was basically the, they called him the NRA's point man on the Hill. He was a congressman who basically represented the NRA in Congress. Um, and then the, the, at the time, the, the medical director of the CDC, 
who was wanting to just do research on gun violence and um, Congress would not fund that. Or um, And they, they developed a very unlikely friendship <laughs> and came to a, a sensible place basically. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I did that I, I think, work. But okay, so what, where what where, the, is the, where are the fruits of their labor there? Well, there are there are there are groups that are I don't know the names, but it's like gun owners for for sensible gun yes. laws, right? Oh, so right. so that so I think, but you bring up the point about con- you don't understand yeah, those aren't the lawmakers the, though. Yeah, the, but the lawmakers are not that. That's not their goal. They're not. It's not that they're not understanding the situation. It's that they're trapped in this you know, two party ping pong ball back and forth, like needing to get elected, like being outflanked by the most extreme in your party on in the primary, they're trapped in a completely dysfunctional political system. I mean, behind the curtain, you know, behind the curtain, and this is true on climate, this is true on so many issues behind the curtain. <laughs> I think a lot of people in Congress are, or maybe were, I don't know, maybe things have changed, but um, are more sensible are actually more sensible. It's that they have to it, we have set up a situation where the biggest risk is getting outflanked by someone who is more extreme in your party in a primary. And so we're ending so up they're being held hostage by their own of, constituencies yeah. and, and the, those constituencies in turn are being held hostage by a broken media and, and it's misinformation a vicious cycle. And it's a vicious cycle and you can intervene anywhere. And we could say, OK, let's say we intervene with culture. Let's say we intervene with people and with and p- how people understand this issue and articulate this issue and how they demand, you know, it, 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 right. That, 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 it, that is an acupressure point we could push, let's say, but, but that requires articulating this position that is the kind of sensible position that if enough that, that would draw people from either camp pro or anti onto this big, strange bed with all these strange bedfellows, right? Because a lot of us don't even fit in the camp we're in. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, Get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. 
And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Stephanie, how did you find your way into this space? So you're you're an artist, <laughs> you're an activist, you you know a lot about AI kinds of I've things. I've been called an activist. <laughs> well, I oh, read, so there's sure. some bio floating around somewhere that calls you an artist and an activist. Oh, so, you know, okay, and I'll take it. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, the, I've been doing this show for almost two years now and I've talked to so many people who, you know, they were just minding their own business. They were like writers or, you know, musicians or just, you know, people like not particularly political or not having big ideas about free speech, that kind of thing. And yeah. something happened in their own work or in their uh-huh. life that that kind of galvanized them and made them sort of realize how how censorious the culture has become and just how mm. difficult it is to have honest discussions. So I, I guess my question is, how? what were you doing before <laughs> you started talking about this stuff? Like, what did you, what, you know, what did you study? How did you, how did you arrive in the, in the place that you find yourself currently? Huh. Um, well, um, maybe, maybe I'll tell a story about an experience I had that was formative. Um, yeah, Wait. I um so as a as a freshman in college I went to a um <laughs> this is this is what's coming up so <laughs> I'll tell the story. I went to a uh rally to protest redwood logging in Northern California. It was uh it was with a group called Rats Redwood Action Team at Stanford. We went up to Mendocino and to protest the logging of the redwoods and speak at a city council meeting. And we called Julia Butterfly on speakerphone, <laughs> which any of you who remember. Oh, I remember she her. Was, okay, yeah. so she was living in a tree. She was living in a tree. This was she in the protest. 90s? When was uh-huh. this? Yeah, okay. the, yeah, late 90s, early 2000. It would have been right. 1998. This was, a, just so people know, she was an environmental activist that was like staging a kind of tree sit-in. Just, mm-hmm. just describe her quickly. Yeah, she was she was living in a tree. She named the tree Luna. She lived in in a redwood tree, I think, for about a year. Um, as and people a, brought her food as an act and, of protest and yeah. uh, lovely organic. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and I remember we got there. Th- there were two things I noticed when we got there. Um, one was that the people we were kind of protesting against, you know, were these loggers, and they looked very humble. They looked like people of modest means, and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> If I I don't think I should be against those people. Like I don't know how these lines are drawn, but they're drawn in a way that doesn't make sense to me because I want to be on the side as the tree, the same side as the trees and these people. So that was already confused. I didn't I didn't understand. I didn't have a term for sustainable development or, but it it it, it struck me that the lines were drawn in a way that didn't make sense to me. So that was one thing I noticed. And then the second observation I made was, um, so we go into the city council meeting and. Uh, you know, the, the representative from our team is testifying and he's testifying about, you know, the spotted, the spotted salamander, the spotted owl, I think it was, and the, and all these endangered species basically who are, who live in the, in the, in the redwood forest and would be endangered by logging it. And I could just see 
the eyes of these city council members just glazing over. It was like, they've heard this before. This is not persuasive. This is not interesting. This is not speaking to them. And so then, yeah, that, that, then the question comes up in my mind, you know, how do people change their hearts and minds? Like, this is not it. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and that question ultimately ended up leading to reckoning. So it's not a straight line, but that question definitely stayed with me. You know, how are these lines drawn? This doesn't make sense. How do people change? You know, what is the position that would put us on the same side? Let's say. Uh, yeah. So what did you do? What did I do? So nice and and I, I'm assuming that your efforts uh, at the city council were, were for naught. How did, how did that actually end? Oh, I should know the answer to that question. I think I just, I don't know because I left the group because it didn't really speak to me. Now, and actually, you, and I didn't. Mm. Yeah. Well, were you actually, did you voice this to your classmate? No, 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 no. Because I, I, I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I also had, I, I also wasn't very political. I hadn't had my political kind of awakening or I, I felt very, I was a dancer and a philosopher <laughs> and that's what I studied. And so I felt like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm over my head here. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but I didn't feel, I didn't say anything. Okay. So this was in the late nineties. Were you sort of going with the flow with your fellow progressives for a period of time, or did you start kind of wrestling with your cognitive dissidents pretty soon thereafter? It, I, well, it, it took, I didn't really have to wrestle as much maybe because politics just felt foreign to me for a long time. I, my way in was through philosophy. I, I, I used to call myself a promiscuous pragmatic pluralist (laughs) until I learned there was one word for it, which is integral, which I don't know if people have talked about integral theory and integral thinking on this show, but not this show, but wait, progressive. What did you a say? Promiscuous, promiscuous, pragmatic pluralist. Well, that's a great name for a podcast. <laughs> promiscuous, pragmatic pluralism. Who wants to listen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I yeah, and I, I it was just a way. It's more of a a worldview, uh, and I hadn't really applied it to politics. Per se, it, politics felt. Um, yeah, I didn't really come back to politics until I really until I married someone very political, and I was. Uh, kind of intimidated. And then I realized that the entire, the way that I think my worldview is very applicable to politics. It's the synthesis. It's it, what it is, is the, is, is the integral position, let's say is the, you know, I mean, I can just sum it up by saying instead of, um, you know, what right versus wrong or what true and not true, it's under what circumstances, if any, it's the same question I asked about synthetic media. Under what circumstances, if any, is X true? Okay, or so helpful? this is this is a nuanced position. Like that's yeah. how we would say it on this show. Yeah, and and actually, my husband is totally there too, which puts us at odds a little bit with kind of all the people around us. <laughs> because, well, at least um, we have each other. Really? Yes, so, yeah. I'm so <laughs> grateful we have each other. I am so grateful we have each other. Yeah. And so when you say all the people around you, who are those people? Should I name them? Just kidding. No, I don't need their first name. I don't need their, no, their names. I mean, like, I, kind, yeah, like, we are we both, talking about what kind of, like, what yeah, kind yeah, yeah. of We both, we both come from more from the left. We both definitely come from, and we are very much rooted in progressive values and, and, right? And life is precious. And, right? And, I mean, just to give a very specific example, my husband, um, my husband works in addiction medicine and, he needs his his patients to 
participate in their in their own healing process, right? Which is a very pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like mm-hmm. he can only do so much. They need to have a prayer for their life. And so yeah, he, he appro- is that is that is that conservative? It's that pro- liberal? It's it's a little right. bit of all of the above. It's like he's going to invite you in and do what he can do and give you what you he can give and also yeah, you need to have a, a will to heal and to recover. And you guys live in the Bay Area, right? We live in Mountain View <laughs> in the Bay yeah. of the Beast. We don't, I mean, we're, neither of us are in tech. It's, it's because he did his uh, fellowship in addiction medicine at Stanford. So that's right. No, that's I'm just thinking here. of the, you know, the discussions around the homeless, homeless, well, homelessness and addiction and mental health on the streets and stuff that Michael Schellenberger is talking about. And yes. yeah, it's, it's amazing the way mental health has become politicized. It's all, I mean, it's so wild. You literally throw anything into this environment a pandemic and we can figure out a way to fight about it i mean russia has been slightly maybe a counterexample, but not even not not even totally yeah when you say pro-social like you did a little bit ago in the conversation what does that mean i actually only recently learned the definition of parasocial uh-huh. so what's pro-social Pro-social. I don't know if I know the formal definition, but I just well, what use do you it mean? A, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 beyond just ethical. Let's say in a in a, so using you know there's the question you know can deepfakes be ethical? And for me, it's you know it's like let's be more ambitious than that. If 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 deepfakes can be ethical, you know, or if we identify ways that you know circumstances criteria that um, allow deepfakes to be ethical, well, then how can we use them in ways that are, that actually, that are, that serve us, you know, and I'm sure I'll like, for example, just to go back to addiction, you can imagine working with your patient to script a deepfake of their sober self in the future, talking to themselves now, encouraging themselves onto the path of recovery. Oh yeah. The possibilities are endless. And so yeah, and so I'm interested in okay, how can we, you know, let's go beyond ethical. What what can we do? What can we do with this new technology? This new very powerful, very powerful and therefore we want to be very careful with it technology. Yeah, I guess I I do a very analog version of this when I teach writing. I sometimes give a prompt which is write a letter to your future self or imagine your future self writing a letter to your current self. I love that. Yeah. Um, Okay. I have a lot of questions here. Can we just, can you explain a little bit about the technology of the, of the deep fake? So you actually, you, you wrote a script and is this just all done digitally with altering voices? You said you hire an actor to say, play the role of Brett Kavanaugh. Is there some kind of um, like software that actually makes it sound like Brett Kavanaugh's voice. Yeah, we're getting there. So there is there is synthetic video and synthetic audio. I only did synthetic video for budgetary and legal reasons, but um, because the legal the legal side of audio is still a little was a, is a little. I mean, it's all great. We're in the wild west right now with legislation on all of this, but but it is possible, yes, to do both synthetic video and synthetic audio. And, uh, and all it needs is data. You just need the, I mean, what I, what I did with is I, I have a, a target video. Um, so I just had a video of 
Brett Kavanaugh. It was it was his acceptance speech, <laughs> just why there's all this clapping and Trump is there. Okay, so it's it's his acceptance speech, and then wrote the script, and then I mean I don't know how technical you want to get, but basically we have to match up, we have to choose clips of the video where he is speaking and not speaking, and string them together so that his face is moving when the when when there's speaking. And then mm-hmm. his fa- face stops moving when there's a pause. Um, and then and then replace, basically there's a replacement of, it's called video dialogue replacement. You replace right. the lips with the, and I, so I should say, the, the, the voice actor I, 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 is, is filmed also. So you take the mouth of the voice actor oh, and, okay. and put it onto the face of Brett Kavanaugh. But how do you get the yeah. voice to sound like Brett Kavanaugh? Does that actor just happen to be able to do a good Kavanaugh impression? I, I mean, I uh, voiceactors.com. <laughs> so you didn't actually digitally alter the voice? No, 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 like no, but it is possible. Slider up and down. But it is, it is possible to, that's what I'm saying. With, it is possible to do synthetic audio, which would mean you feed, you feed the AI data and it creates a model so that you can literally just type something and then have it be said in the person's voice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's wild. So, yeah. That well that that's like what they started to do with synthesized instrumentation many decades uh-huh. ago. You yes. Know, this, this sounds like a saxophone. You can just yes. punch it into a keyboard. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you could have a keyboard exactly. So, Stephanie, I want to talk about some ideas that you have about um not only what activists could or should be doing to be more productive, but also public (laughs) intellectuals. You have been, um, I don't want to say critical of quote unquote public intellectuals, but I know you have ideas about how people could kind of stop spinning their wheels and actually um, contribute meaningfully, you know, move the conversation forward, which is something I really try to do on here. I mean, as much as I would love to just like kind of um, talk endlessly and wring my hands about the culture wars or whatever. Um, (laughs) The goal of this show is to actually not complain about the fact that we can't have the conversations, but just have them and um, hope that something new um, and potentially change-making emerges. So, uh, you know, I'm specifically interested in a conversation you had with Glenn Lowry uh, a couple of months (laughs) ago. He's he's beloved by many members of my audience, I'm sure. He's an economist at Brown University. Um, he's known for his conversations with John McWhorter on, on, on blogging heads. They're the black guys on blogging heads. So you went on Glenn's show. It was <laughs> a strange situation because you were actually interviewing him, even I though you know. were on his show. And, yeah. you, and, and you really wanted to talk with him about what being a quote-unquote public intellectual means to him and what he is not, what he is getting out of it or, or not getting out of it at, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess I should give a little context. Um, oh gosh, I hope I'm not too, yeah. How to do tough love. It's a, it's a hard dance. It's, you know, but um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, maybe I'm learning that more as a mom. Um, Cause yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm more, uh, well, anyway, how to do tough love a question. Um, Glenn Lowry. Yeah. He, so he had come on reckonings, uh, the, the, the podcast that I'd been producing about how people change. And we had talked about his whole journey, which is, 
I, I actually very much recommend that episode, uh, reckonings.show. He, I don't know, for people who don't know very much about him, ooh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, his, his story has everything, really. Mm-hmm. He's had such an amazing, wild journey and has learned a lot from it. I mean, in the, in the you know, it's, it's again, it's, he is a perfect example of someone who, just by virtue of watching themselves change, has come to so much wisdom. Yeah. Um, and I, th- and he's, I think that's part of what makes him so cap- like capable of holding such nuance and, yes. you know, really just being so, um, I don't know, adventurous intellectually speaking. And he has so, incredible humility. Yeah. He's, oh, he's just such a joy to listen to. I mean, he's like yeah. a poet the way that he speaks. So yes. I have a lot of respect for Glenn. I have a lot of love for Glenn. I also, we, we had also, t- it was a two part episode that we did and, um, we'd always talked about doing another round. And um, especially because he was writing a memoir and uh, like a a lot of our conversation kind of was helpful to him in writing his memoir, which apparently he's still writing (laughs) like almost, I don't know, eight years later. Um, And so I, I, why did I, oh, I, he, right. What happened was he went on, um, he went on Barry Weiss's podcast and, uh, and mentioned me not by name. He said that there was an interlocutor with whom he learned all kinds of things. He, he, he mentioned me and he sent it to me and he said, you know, see if you can find where I refer to you in the episode. And I listened (laughs) to it and I was just kind of reminded of the another round that we never did and that it just felt like it was time to do. And yeah, because he, he, yes, he is critical of, of, um, you know, cancel culture and call out culture and, all these kinds of things um, that your listeners are very familiar with. And, um, and I just, I just kind of wanted to do the thing that we had done before, which is really just me holding up a mirror, which of course, then we didn't give that context to his listeners. <laughs> and so I got a lot of heat from his fans, but, um, but one yeah, of them, they, I'm talking- they thought that he had invited you on as a guest and that yeah. you as a guest proceeded to. Exactly. Um, interrogate inter yeah. interlock you him yes yes but i've had some very interesting exchanges with i've never gotten such a divergent reaction it was really love hate and including from the from the same people this one person literally just reached out to me yesterday saying he felt he was so kind of angered but he really wants to talk to me yeah <laughs> so so we're having a phone call next week he was like really like but i really oh really God. want to get on the phone with you very I don't, generous of you i i yeah well and then he just turned into you know heart emojis like i'm so grateful that you're gonna t-. it's like okay i don't know but you know maybe this is part of my work to do um you know and people certainly held up a mirror to me was i too judgmental maybe probably that's probably something i have to work on you know we're all just stumbling our way through and teaching each other but anyway for glenn yeah it was um the the idea was for me to go back on and hold up a mirror again and the mirror means what is your goal is the question what is what are you trying to achieve as a public intellectual and are you achieving that goal and just let that you know just make room for that question that was that that's really it yeah <laughs> Did you feel that he wasn't living up to uh, certain standards or expectations? Yeah. So the tough love for me is I have an idea. My judgmental idea is that he could be more helpful if he, you know, we've heard the critique. We've heard it. We get it. Memo has been received. And and now what? 
what's next, what's forward, what's unifying, what's synthesis. But maybe that's not what he wants to do. And if that's not, not what he wants to do, that's okay. It's just, you know, let's all be honest about this all so that we can all stay accountable to who we want to be, right? And that's just, I was playing the role of the, you know, holding him accountable to who he wants to be with my own idea of what I would like to see from him, which may not be what he would like to see. But here's the way through, actually, that we didn't totally get to. So he, I was kind of framing it as, <laughs> you know, well, do you want to be right or do you want to be helpful? Which actually isn't my frame. He, he, he gave me that frame when we had a little bit of a pre-conversation that this is kind of a struggle that he has, mm-hmm. being right, being helpful in, in his personal life too. And, uh, and where we didn't totally get to is I, I, don't, I don't think he actually needs, I don't think that needs to be a trade-off. I think he can be right and helpful. And I think the way through because part of what he's doing with his critique is I, I could say, um, and give me a set, I, I haven't said this out loud, so we'll see how it comes out. But part of what he's doing with his critique is, I, I, I would say, identifying the circumstances under which something is not helpful or useful, right? If part of my, if part of my promiscuous pragmatic pluralism is... Uh, Let's just let's just say affirmative action because that's something that yeah. Let's that actually for anybody who, listening who does not know what Glenn Lowry's critique is, we should just say he is he's a a, a, a black scholar economist who is critical of things like affirmative action, certainly critical race theory in its current iteration. Um, he's just kind of a you know in in the vein of a Thomas Sewell or um, somebody. Uh, you know, those and, kinds of thinkers. And he's also inviting the pull yourself up, up by your bootstraps in response to systemic racism. It's like, yes, the well, and he's kind of ping-ponged in between those different views. And the integral position is you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose between systemic racism and moral development or character development. You don't have to say that systemic racism doesn't exist is what you're saying. You can, yeah, exactly. you can acknowledge its existence while also suggesting that we need to move beyond. And if, we're, and if we want to, I mean, if what, that's, that's so the, what integral would say, what integral theory would say is that the left systemically looks at the environment the the context the context in which we operate the political and economic and power context. structures yeah and the right kind of to a fault systemically looks at the interior dimension the inner the the morals character Moral, ethics yeah. okay you don't have to choose <laughs> all of the above they both have explanatory power we need to intervene in both if you want to talk about where we should put you know triage we don't have an infinite amount of resources where should we put our energy great good question right let's like Let's figure out, you know, where the acupressure points lie. But I'm going to take a wild guess that we probably have to intervene. I'll just put it very simply, uh, exterior and interior, right? Going back to my husband, addiction medicine, he can do what he can. I mean, people need jobs and homes and, you know, and they need to have a will to to live and to recover. So, um, yeah, so I, I didn't get there with Glenn, but that's kind of where I would um, and I'm, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually inviting him and, uh, and kind of an elder in the integral community, Jeff Salzman. I'm, I think, I think they're going to have a conversation and I think that could be really powerful and helpful because I don't think Glenn has to choose between being right and being helpful. And I think, um, whether he goes integral, I don't know, that's just, that happens to be my way, but I think he will find that 
yeah, it's the, the, he doesn't have to kind of ping pong. He can find a, a, a synthesis for himself. Right. That will, um, that will actually feel new and refreshing and revitalizing. I know he loves, he gets excited by new ideas. He gets excited by new thinking. And, yeah, um, yeah, I guess I would, I mean, if I were him and I was defending myself, I might say something like the very fact that I, as a black person, am speaking out. And uh, the fact that I am expressing these ideas without apology, um, and that in and of itself is doing something because it's giving permission to other people to step outside of their tribe and and speak honestly, totally uh, independently. And that's actually a pretty, that's not a passive gesture. Oh, no, no, no. And, and what I would say to that is, Memo received. What's next? But what is next? Okay, because this, we're talking about Glenn <laughs> now. But that sounds so horrible. For all of us. No, but I think you're absolutely right. No, I think I'm that you, you, you your listeners too. gotten to the heart of this. No, because I think my <laughs> listeners, I, I think that they probably think a lot about this stuff too, because like so many of us, it feels really good to talk about this stuff endlessly and you can get, you know, a lot of listeners by mm. doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is that we're not policymakers. Okay. We are here, thinkers. Here, yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's very hard for us to like come up with some kind of plan. Totally. Totally. Okay. He, here's actually what I would say more is, okay. What is the, he, he gave the title of our conversation. I love this title. I don't think I actually said it in this way, but he called it the responsibilities of a public intellectual. Yeah. And so the question might be asked, what is the responsibility of a public intellectual? And what I would say is it depends on the context right now. The context that we are in is outrage fueled echo chambers. We are in the tower of Babel. And therefore, yes. I would say one of the responsibilities of a public intellectual is to make wormholes between the echo chambers. Okay, right? and that okay, what to, do you mean by a wormhole? And we and you and know Jonathan Jonathan Haidt, who I just interviewed, talked talks about the Babel analogy. I mean, it's a it's a very it's a very good one. But okay, so wormhole like wormholes what, here. What here are mean? things that we that could be tracked. Are, is your content being liked by people who usually don't like the same thing as each other? <laughs> well, Seriously. if it is, then your friends are going to get mad at you. No, the point is your friends liked it and some of your non-friends liked it. That's what's why you are building a wormhole between echo chambers now. Yes, you're but doing... then your friends are going to say, uh-oh, I'm not going to like that again because look who else likes her. This is what happens. Yeah, I mean, I again, I think part of this Part of this is we don't have a uh, the bed for the strange bedfellows to get it. I mean, your podcast is a bed is definitely part of the mosaic of the bed. Um, but I, I think I, my point is my point is I think there are things there are ways to track whether you are doing the work of you know b- creating the you can be here in the Venn diagram, like mm-hmm. whether you are doing the work of connect building bridges between tribes. Because this whole Tower of Babel thing is really not working. And it's, wow. and again, it's pushing a, a us definition. to these extremes, pushing us to these extremes, like on abortion, that, 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 where the majority, that don't, that don't actually reflect, right, the preferences of the majority, the majority of the largest group no. of ideas. So, okay, yeah. so how do you um, actually, like, what would be a plan of action in your mind? <laughs> For Glenn? <laughs> for any for anybody because he, I would say okay. like yeah go ahead because I have yeah. a few ideas I mean there's so many 
One example that comes to mind, are you familiar with the phenomenon of an anti-debate? Um, th- uh, no, but I actually, well, I think I know what you mean. Because I, I talked about this with Sam Harris, too. I think the debate, uh. the debate um, model is not useful anymore. Yeah. So yeah. I think I know. An anti-debate it's isn't like, like f- that's just kind of like a what we used to call a conversation. No, no, you're actually okay. kind of competing to steelman each other's position to integrate your position integrate the strongest version of their position into oh your i position. see okay okay yeah, yeah. so it's a steel a steel manning uh it's a it's a setup it's a it's an exercise in building that you can be here right because the person gives their thing and you re-articulate it back to them maybe in an even stronger form because you've integrated it with your own i mean i ha- this hasn't actually been the, i haven't actually seen one <laughs> P- I, I should credit peter Limberg who runs the, uh, an amazing community. It's uh, definitely part of the big bed, <laughs> the bed with strange bedfellows that's called the Stoa. He has proposed this idea of an anti-debate. Um, he's written about it with a colleague of his, Con- Connor Barnes. And um, I mean, there could be an entire show that this is what it is. It's just articulating the synthesis. It's just anti-debates on everything. So you're not and, trying um, to win? Like, is somebody going to win this debate, this anti-debate? Uh, I, I think the, I mean, the public wins because you actually get the synthesis perspective that mo- okay, more people yes, can. Okay, yes, good yeah. answer. But like, are the participants <laughs> I mean, trying I mean, to, ultimately, no, are they trying to like sway sure, the other person? Sure, sure, sure. You could say, yeah, because you could imagine this, like, I'm going to just predict right now, I'm just going to make a totally ambitious prediction that for the 2024 presidential election, there will be an anti-debate on Joe Rogan. Okay. Because you mean the topic will be Joe Rogan or it will, this no, will take no. place on the Joe Rogan? The presidential, the presidential thing <laughs> that is currently on wherever it is, CNN, and is not. We don't even public. know what network it's on anymore. It doesn't matter. We don't even yeah, know, know where it is. Right. And the point is, it's not serving the public. And uh, I mean, now that we have independent slash not independent, but like non-legacy influ- media pundits or influencers who have as big of an audience, yeah. if not bigger, if not then, so. y- you know, we go, it's like the, the consciousness goes where the audience, is, you know, the culture goes where the, if, if the biggest thing that if Joe Rogan calls, if he just says, Hey, presidential lineup, we're actually going to do an anti-debate on my show because my show is the show with the audience. If you can't do an anti-debate, well, then you're just going to, lo- you know, you won't be there. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a competition for who can integrate the best of all the, of what all the candidates have to offer. That's the winner. That's who we want to vote for. Is Joe Rogan going to moderate this? If there's a candidate, by the way, who has nothing helpful to offer, it doesn't need to be integrated. There's some things we can absolutely, you know, it's under what circumstances, if any. Um, I don't know if Joe Rogan would moderate. Maybe Joe I, Rogan. Can he handle this? I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think, I don't know if he could, I don't know. Maybe he could. I mean, I think the first question is, is he interested? Um, and I think after the whole debacle, I think he actually would be. But but the point is, the bigger point is also just, um, yeah, the, 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 this can go anywhere. And we're in a moment now with media where the gate, you know, the gates came crashing down. <laughs> and so wherever the audience is, whatever, whoever's doing the thing, that's the helpful thing. Like, that's where that's where we went. That's where mm-hmm. let's go. So. 
<laughs> so my no, I think I think those are really good points. I would I would love to see that on on Joe Rogan. Um, I'd love to see it on the Unspeakable. So if Joe if Joe turns down that idea, <laughs> Do they you? have an they have an open invitation to uh, come awesome. On this Do you, would you want to moderate an anti debate between presidential candidates in twenty twenty four? Um, possibly. It depends on how much time I would have to prepare. Sounds like a very stress, very stressful. Um, yeah, well, but, you have you have two years. Yeah, it's usually, but who knows what we're even going to be talking about by then? I mean, we might be yeah. on on other have colonized uh, other planets who by then, knows? and you know, who knows? who knows? So, so you know, another thing, like I'm thinking a way, you know, so my version of the wormhole. It's not really the wormhole, but I try to. I try really hard to set a good example on social media. I know that sounds just like really boring and, you know, like prudish, but I think that like not, not, I think that not running your mouth and, and being as respectful as possible is a tremendous asset when you're trying to have these conversations because, you know, people always say, well, I can't, you know, if you so much as talk about gender, you're going to get shouted down and call these things. Or if you so much as talk about policing or this or that, and it's like, well, you know, if you talk about those things and then you don't give your enemy any, any ammunition for calling you a terrible person, it it really helps. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying you can avoid it, but just be respectful you know, I don't, you know, acknowledge that people feel differently, acknowledge that there's a lot of pain around something, you know, show some empathy. I know it's hard to do in a tweet, but you know, there are tweet threads. There's Twitter's not the only platform. I just feel yeah. like a lot, a lot of people who are great and making really good points and are really smart, they kind of like blow it with the way they act <laughs> on social media. And it makes me oh, yeah. so frustrated. On the other hand, if you act that way, you are going to get more followers and you are going to reach more people. So maybe I'm the naive one. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, show everybody how you comport yourself. And yeah. but at the same time, well, oh, then they say, well, you're not getting yelled at because your audience isn't that big. So who yeah. knows? This is a perfect example of it's going to take the inner and the outer, right? We have to change this toxic outrage fueled echo chamber environment that we're in. And yeah, we need to develop some decorum too right we need some manners and then they say don't tone police me i mean you know we don't have time for for that now like i get a lot of that like don't uh yeah you know that that's a privilege for you to to um to be so nice and respectful yeah i mean i my my perspective on this is probably i don't know one that those people will not like but you know, there's just the bigger question of what's the goal? Like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to have a functional democracy, (laughs) having not just a functional, but a thriving, a thriving and robust democracy that can outcompete autocratic regime that can, that can like, you know, adjust and inclusive and, and thriving democracy. And so what, I I mean, like, I think what's challenging about free speech is that it's both an end in itself and it's a means to bigger ends. It's an end in itself because we all yearn to express ourselves. We have a human need and, and desire to express ourselves and it's a means. There's a reason why it's the First Amendment. It's a, it's a means to, to a democracy is to enable speech and enable dissent. And yet 
those th- those the, the means and the like they are in tension right now. It 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 can be the case. We you know there's the trope of of more the only remedy for bad speech is more speech. That's true in a really robust and healthy marketplace of ideas. We don't have a healthy and robust marketplace Mm -hmm. of ideas. We have Twitter. (laughs) So, you know, we got to clean up the marketplace in order for more speech to be a remedy for bad speech. And maybe part of cleaning it up is, you know, and this is what people won't like is maybe we need some training wheels along the way because right now we've totally lost our manners. (laughs) Beyond. Does that and mean so banning maybe, people from no, Twitter? No, I don't know what it means. I don't have a specific example. My point is more: we may need more moderation in order so, in order to get ourselves into a place where we don't need it anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. the goal is, again, is to is let's say to align to align freedom of expression with with a democracy to have to, instead of the, those two being intention. And we can track certain things. We can track. You know, is the emotional tone getting more civil? Like, are we, is there less blocks? I don't even know. I don't, I mean, are there more wormholes between the echo, whatever it is that we're tracking, we can track. Oh, okay. You know, we're doing better. We can kind of loosen up on moderation because we're Mm -hmm. moving in the right direction. So I don't, it's like, I don't, it's not like there's a forever answer to the, how do we moderate ourselves question? There's just, what do we need right now to get, to get ourselves moving in the right direction? So that we can, yeah, I would, I mean, in a robust marketplace of ideas, we'd all be more free speech absolutist, right? <laughs> so, but that's just not the situation we're in right now. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, this has been amazing. I have one last question for you, which I promise is not a gotcha question because I just thought of it while, while we were talking. Okay. So if somebody was going to do a deep fake reckoning video <laughs> of you Something that you had, um, you know, just a sort of revision or expansion um, on or reversal even on thoughts that you had in the past. What would it be about and what might you say? That's so intense. Um, I mean, you don't have to give me the exact script. Like what in the what realm? Like, would 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 this be like a philosophical? Because you're you are a philosopher. So like, would this be a philosophical (laughs) idea? Would this be just something in your personal life? Like, where would it be? Land. It would be in my personal life. Yeah, it would be. um, It's all it's definitely in my personal life. Right. It's I mean, it's so funny on reckonings. People, you know, I talked to former white supremacists, all kinds of people. People are like, wow, you're so compassionate. I was like, wait till you hear me talk to my husband (laughs) and my mom. Um, So definitely be in my personal life. What? I think it would probably be I'm debating between two, but I, I think I'll I think it would be. My relationship with. I was about to say production, which is kind of wild because I am an executive producer. That is my title. But that is that is. Yeah, my I have a. I have a lot of creative anguish. Um, I have way more that I want to produce than I am capable of producing. And it um, it really gets in the way of everything. It really it's it 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 what it does to me is it makes it like invites me to or not invites me to it kind of compels me to set up a tug of war between fulfilling my creative dreams and the rest of my life in a way that's really painful for me and for the people around me and so 
my deep fake self would would somehow would somehow would transcend that tug of war would would and not and not by not with this kind of simple like oh well in order to be creative you have to take time off and do other things <laughs> no because then it's still in service of creative i actually need to just let go of the things i want to produce sometimes just totally let go of them and mm -hmm. just be with the rest of my life be at peace with my life the way that it is it just yeah it's not all up to me i have other jobs in this i'm a mom i'm a wife i'm a daughter i'm a sister and so um yeah you like i, I i'm not sure what the tone would be i don't know if it would be a little tough love like <laughs> just you know or if it would be more of a well actually yeah maybe it would be more of a parenthood wifehood sisterhood daughterhood is is my dojo for really learning what i'm I, yeah i don't know i don't know what the angle would be but um it would be something something there yeah transcending yeah. the tug of war <laughs> oh it's an interesting exercise it's a terrifying exercise <laughs> yeah. i would uh if somebody imposed it on me i would be uh, quite, quite um, apprehensive. So, well, thank you for. Should Should I impose that on you? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're at a no. we're at a time. No, thanks. Oh, we're um, Save but, uh, Yeah. Well, Stephanie, <laughs> yeah. this has been great. Um, thank you so much for uh for for talking with me. And there's a lot to digest here. So, um, I uh, I hope we can do it again. And in the meantime, um, continued good luck with everything that you're working on. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for, yeah, for, for making space for the unspeakable and for, yes, being part of this big bed, strange okay. bedfellows. Let's keep growing the bed. I'm going to think too hard about that. <laughs> how many people are in the bed and how big is it exactly? It's like a California <laughs> King plus. Yeah, it's like a giant size bed. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, thank you. That was my conversation with Stephanie Lepp. She is the executive producer at the Center for Humane Technology, where she leads the production of the podcast, Your Undivided Attention. Her latest project is Deep Reckonings, a series of explicitly marked deep fake videos that imagine morally courageous versions of our public figures. You can reach Stephanie on her Twitter at at Steph Lepp. That's L-E-P-P. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can get lots of perks there. Uh, but if Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast in any amount by visiting the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking on the donate button. Again, if you are interested in the Unspeakeasy which is the heterodox women's community I'm in the process of creating, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com and see what that's all about. You'll have the opportunity to fill out a brief form and tell me what you might be looking for for such a thing. Just get on the mailing list. Let me know you're interested. Again, that is theunspeakeasy.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.